You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5 as we continue our series in 1 Timothy called Gospel Culture in God's Household. Today we're in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. Now pastors can be one of the greatest gifts to the church or one of its greatest dangers. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 that Jesus has given shepherds to the church as a gift to build up the body of Christ and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They are to preach the word, they are to feed the flock, they are to care for the weak, they are to watch out for false teaching and wolves in sheep's clothing. They are to shepherd the flock on behalf of Jesus Christ, who is called the good shepherd. Now the problem is that not all who serve as pastors should be doing so. Some pastors, are even wolves in sheep's clothing. This is a problem that the great prophets of old identified and lamented throughout Israel's history. The prophet Isaiah wrote, they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. And the prophet Jeremiah writes about the consequences of these shepherds who have turned to their own ways to unjust gain. He says, for the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. And again, he says, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. We know the common biblical saying that you strike the shepherd and you scatter the sheep but it turns out that that's not the only way to scatter the sheep. Bad shepherds will do it just as effectively. And so what we see is that having godly and gifted pastors is a matter of great importance when it comes to the health of local churches. And in our text today, Paul tells us that when the Lord gives a church godly and gifted pastors, the church is called to honor them. to to give thanks for them and to provide for their financial needs. But when pastors go astray, whether it's through laziness or through false teaching or uh, through unrepentant sin, the church has a responsibility to discipline them. If we're gonna cultivate gospel culture in God's household, then there really is no more important topic to address than this. The household's only going to be healthy if the managers of the household are godly. We need to honor those managers who are faithful, and we need to discipline those who are not. And I say that with some trepidation, obviously, because I am a pastor, and I'm inviting you to discipline me if I go astray. But that is what the Bible calls us to consider this morning. And so uh, let us read these verses together. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. The title of this sermon is The Pastor's High Calling. The Pastor's High Calling. We're going to have three points today. First, honoring pastors. Second, judging pastors. And third, ordaining pastors. Let's look at our first point, honoring pastors. Now you'll recall from last Sunday that Paul is in the middle of giving Timothy instructions on how Christians are to relate to different groups within the church. Older men are to be encouraged as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. And widows in the church are to be honored They are to be honored and recognized for their good works, and they are to be provided for if they have financial needs. And now Paul turns his attention to how the church is to relate to its pastors. In verse 17, he calls them elders, which is really just another title for pastors. Pastors are elders, and elders are pastors. They're called elders because pastors are meant to be spiritual seniors in the church. They are to be mature in their character and mature in their doctrine. They are also called pastors because that's what they do in the church. Pastor literally means shepherd. Those who are elders in the church are to shepherd the church. They are to feed the church with the word of God. They are to protect the church from false teaching. And they are to lead the church in such a way that the sheep of the pasture uh, flourish. Paul says that they are to rule. They are to rule well. And this word rule is the same word that he uses in chapter 3 when he said that the elders must manage their own households well. They are to, to be overseers of their households and they are to be overseers of the church, being teachers and guardians of God's people. And this is the responsibility of every pastor in the church. Every pastor is called by God to rule in the church, to manage God's household, not as tyrants, not as bullies, not as business managers, but as shepherds, as shepherds. But among this group of shepherds who are all called to rule and manage the church, there is a smaller group of shepherds, a subsection, which is distinctly called to devote itself to preaching and teaching. Of course, as we've seen in chapter three, every pastor needs to be able to teach. 
If you're not able to teach, you're not qualified to be a pastor. But there is a a special category of pastors of this group who are able to teach, who are particularly devoted to the work of preaching and teaching. And that is why some denominations, we see this in Presbyterian denominations and in many reformed denominations, they've created a distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders. Teaching elders do the bulk of the preaching and the teaching, and the ruling elders provide pastoral care and uh, take care of the church's administration. Now, in Sovereign Grace, we don't have such a clear distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders, but we do follow the same principle. That's why you'll hear me preaching and teaching more often than our other elders and elders in training. You will also hear from them because they also have a gifting to teach and to preach. But the bulk of the preaching and teaching responsibilities will be carried out by me. And that is us following the biblical precedent that we see in 1 Timothy. Now, Paul says that the elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, you'll remember from last Sunday that he had just called the church to honor widows, and that included the providing of their financial needs. And now he calls the church to give double honor to the church's elders, which uh, also includes financial provisions, not limited to financial provision, but one of the ways that the church is to honor its elders is to provide for their financial means. That's why he quotes these two scriptures in verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Now this first scripture reference about oxes and muzzling is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse four. Paul actually quotes that verse in 1 Corinthians 9 when he explains that, do you think that God is concerned primarily about oxen? He says, no, no, this is a principle that we are meant to apply to human society, that the one who works should get paid for his work. And he was using that scripture in 1 Corinthians in a very similar fashion to exhort the church to provide for the financial means of its pastors. Now, the second reference about the laborer deserves his wages is actually a reference not to the Old Testament scriptures, but to what, the, uh, what uh, Luke writes in chapter 10 of his gospel. When Jesus is sending out the 72, he's sending out the 72 disciples to go and to heal and to teach and to enter different houses. He says the laborer deserves his wages. Now this is very interesting because it, it shows us that the apostle Paul had a copy of either Luke's gospel or uh, a fragment of Luke's gospel And uh, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that Paul and Luke were traveling companions, so this isn't so much a surprise. But what is fascinating about this is that Paul calls Luke's writings the scriptures. The scripture says the laborer deserves his wages. And so we see already in the early apostolic era, uh, the apostle Paul treating the, the writings of living people whom he knew as being equivalent in authority to the Old Testament scriptures. His point, of course, in quoting these verses is to to remind the church that it has a God-given responsibility 
to provide for the material and financial needs of the shepherds that he has placed over it. Now, of course, it's not always possible for a church to uh, hire a pastor full-time or to provide for uh, multiple pastors and their financial needs. And that's one of the reasons why on certain occasions, the apostle Paul did not receive a salary from the churches that he served among. Uh, Instead, he made tents or he uh, received support from other churches with means. We see that in the church in Philippi. They supported his work as he labored in gospel ministry in other places. But the principle is that the church should provide for its own pastors as the church is able. Now, the reason for this principle is that pastoring is hard work. And when we see that in the testimony of the first pastors in scripture, but I can also say that through personal testimony, pastoring takes time and it takes effort and it takes more time and effort than a man who is working full time is able to give. And Paul emphasizes this in verse 17 when he speaks of those who labor in preaching and teaching. He calls the preaching and teaching ministry to be laboring. And and that word literally means to grow weary, to grow weary in preaching and teaching. It's the same word that, that Jesus uses in Matthew 11 when he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, all who labor. This is wearying work. Pastoring is laborious work. It's the kind of work that exhausts you. You know, it might seem like pastors just show up to the church and open up their Bibles and speak whatever comes to their minds. But that's just not true. Preaching takes study. It takes meditation. It takes wrestling over a text of scripture to understand what it means and how to apply it and and how to contextualize it. It's, It's similar to the work of a carpenter. You go to Steve Kaminar's shop you see this beautiful furniture and, and you, you, you can just pick it up and buy it and take it home. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's there as a finished product, but that doesn't reflect the, the countless hours that went on behind the scenes to, to plan and to design and to choose a specific piece of wood and to research how to sand it and to finish it and then to, to figure out how to put the different parts together. Well, pastoring is like that. Preaching is like that. It takes time. It takes effort. It also takes knowing God's people. You must know God's word and you must know God's people. You can't preach to God's people if you don't know what they're going through. And so pastoring involves late night phone calls. Pastoring involves visiting other people's homes. Pastoring involves shoving aside everything in your schedule including your own family time to care for a person in crisis. And that is why the scriptures teach that elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. If godly widows are worthy of honor, then godly elders are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching because above anyone else in the church, they bear primary responsibility for the health of that church. That's why we cannot muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. Instead, we are to feed it. We are to give it rest. We are to treat it with 
respect. My friends, that is the imagery that should come to mind when we imagine the work of a pastor. It's not what happens on the stage. You know, the sage on the stage who impresses with his wisdom and his stories. The image that we should have in our minds when we imagine the work of a pastor is of the ox in the fields, just walking back and forth, back and forth, rain or shine, morning or evening, treading out the grain to separate the wheat from the husk. Pastoring is laborious work. And that is why pastors are called to receive from their churches double honor. Now, if we were not going through 1 Timothy, I would have little reason to kind of parachute into this text and preach it to our church because our church does a remarkable job in honoring its pastors. There is, in some way, some cultural urgency to preach a text like this because we live in an age of disrespect. We live in a time when we have forgotten how to honor those who are around us, to honor the government, to honor parents, and to honor pastors. But I can say on behalf of our church's leadership that our church does a wonderful job in this area. I mean, no church is gonna be perfect, but, but our material needs, our financial needs have always been provided for. Even in this time when, when families and individuals have lost jobs and, and had their own financial struggles, there's never been a question from our church, any hesitation from our church to provide for her pastors. And that is a joy. That makes our labor a joy. Not every pastor has a joyful experience in laboring as an overseer of their churches. But our experience overwhelmingly has been one of joy because of how you have honored us. But not all pastors are worthy of honor. Paul says that those who rule well are considered worthy of double honor. And that implies that those who do not rule well are not worthy of double honor. Instead, as he is about to say, they are to be rebuked and judged. This leads to our second point. Paul begins in verse 19 by quoting an evidentiary principle from Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 19. And that principle says that for any formal charge to be established, for an accuser to bring a charge against another person, it must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There must be more than one witness. And courts today call this corroboration. Evidence has to be corroborated to be reliable. Because if there's only one witness, and that witness can turn a case into a he said, she said, it becomes far too easy for a single individual with a personal vendetta to slander the good reputations of godly people. And here in verse 19, Paul reminds the church that this applies equally to elders. Yes, elders are to be held to a higher standard. Yes, elders are to be above reproach. But Paul is saying by no means does that mean that as soon as a complaint arises against a pastor, they are to be removed from office or disciplined. You know, the pastor Kent Hughes, many of you may have written, uh, uh, read some of his writings. 
a veteran pastor with over 60 years of experience. Uh, Ken Hughes writes about an occasion near the beginning of his ministry when a young woman who was part of his college group uh, began to frequently and regularly drive around his house. And uh, shortly after establishing this routine, she began to spread the rumor that Pastor Kent Hughes was going to leave his wife and that he was going to marry her. Well, that could have ruined his ministry. It could have deprived his church and the church at large that has benefited from his ministry of 60 years of fruitful ministry if it were not for this principle that a charge must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, that is a bit of an extreme example, but it happens more often than we realize. When you have a disgruntled member who has a bone to pick with the pastors because of lack of care. It begins to bring an accusation of incompetence or neglect. Or you could have a person who is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, perhaps disciplined out of the church or perhaps just living an unrepentant sin that hasn't been addressed yet in the church, spreading false rumors to tear down the church. Paul's reminding us that we need to guard the reputations of our elders. Guard our elders from false accusations and to defend their reputations against slander. Because listen, if Satan is going to target anyone in the church, he's going to target her pastors. You strike the shepherd and you scatter the sheep. It is one of the enemy's oldest tactics. And that is why the church should be slow to hear spurious charges, charges that arise from dubious circumstances. But it should also be quick to hear legitimate charges. Verse 20 tells us that in Timothy's church in Ephesus, there were not only pastors who sinned, obviously there are pastors who sinned, every pastor sins, but there were pastors who persist in sin. That's what he addresses in verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, there were pastors who were sinning without repenting. There were pastors who refused to accept and to receive the correction of others. There were pastors who didn't stop doing what they were doing even after being confronted. Instead, they persisted in sin. And they continued in their self-destructive paths to their own peril and to the peril of their flocks. Now such a man, Paul says, needs to be rebuked, not just in private, but in public. He needs to be rebuked in the presence of all, he says in verse 20. And why is that? It says, so that the rest may stand in fear. Fear. Fear is not always a bad thing. Fear is that instinct that God has given to us to avoid danger. You, you are meant to feel fear when you're standing uh, on the edge of a cliff for your own safety. And that is the kind of fear that is described here in verse 20, a, a fear that, that if, if my pastor could fall into sin, how much more could I? If, if my pastor, who, is, who has been a godly example, has, has, has left and abandoned his former faith, how much more could I? 
We are reminded when pastors fall not to respond with self-righteousness, not to respond with, oh, he got what he deserved or I saw that coming a mile away, but with a self-reflection to recognize that if they could fall, anyone could fall. I could fall. In his classic book, The Reformed Pastor, the Puritan writer Richard Baxter writes this stirring exhortation to pastors in particular, but to Christians in general. This this wonderful, challenging quotation could speak to any one of us. Uh, Richard Baxter writes, take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine and lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. And so do you want to make disciples? Do you want to see the gospel advance in the world? Do you you want the church to be built up globally and locally? well, then we must watch our lives. Because if we don't, we, we will become the greatest hinderers to the success of our ministry. Not Satan, not secular society, us. Now, who is responsible for hearing charges against pastors and potentially rebuking them? Well, since verse 19, Paul has been writing in the second person singular. When he writes you, he's, he's writing in the singular. So he's writing directly to Timothy. It was Timothy as the lead elder in the church in Ephesus who was responsible for holding rogue pastors in his church accountable. Timothy was the one who was responsible for vetting charges responsible for hearing evidence, responsible for judging the case. And if the pastor was found to be guilty, it was Timothy who was responsible for rebuking his fellow pastors in the presence of all. Now you can only imagine how difficult this would have been. It would be difficult for any pastor, but especially a young pastor like Timothy. But Paul impresses the weight of this responsibility on him in verse 21 when he writes, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Paul is saying, Timothy, you wanna know how important this is for you to do. You wanna know how urgent it is for you to fulfill this responsibility. Well, God the Father, God the Son, and the holy elect angels are watching you. They're watching you to make sure that you faithfully fulfill your responsibilities to judge your fellow pastors when necessary. Paul brings the full weight of God's divine presence on Timothy as he wrestled over the difficulty of hearing charges against his brothers in arms and potentially rebuking them. I don't think it's a coincidence that there are three witnesses here. God the Father, God the Son, and the elect angels. Three witnesses to hear charges if Timothy is unfaithful to his responsibility. And therefore, Timothy must fulfill 
his responsibilities without partiality. Partiality would say, well, I can't hold my fellow pastors accountable. I mean, we've, we've wept together. We have, we have labored in the trenches together. They're my brothers. Uh, I, I would rather just turn a blind eye or to cover their sins and offenses than, than risk the possibility that I might have to rebuke them in the presence of all. Well, that is prejudging the case. That is partiality, and he can't do that. And as we saw in our scripture reading earlier in our service, partiality cannot be exercised by God's people because it goes against the very nature of God. It goes against the essence of true biblical justice. If we are to imitate our holy God, we must judge without partiality. Likewise, he is not to use these charges as an excuse to get back at the fellow pastors he doesn't like. I mean, that's prejudging the case as well. That's showing partiality as well, just in a negative sense. Instead, he is to judge the case fairly on the evidence before him without regard to his personal relationships. In his commentary on 1 Timothy, John Calvin writes about how difficult this is when he says, nothing is more difficult than to discharge the office of a public judge with so great impartiality as never to be moved by favor for anyone or to give rise to suspicions or to be influenced by unfavorable reports or to use excessive severity and in every cause to look at nothing but the cause itself. For only when we shut our eyes to persons do we pronounce an equitable judgment. We must shut our eyes to persons and open our eyes to evidence. There are times when pastors need to be judged, but they must be judged fairly. The judicial panel of pastors who are hearing the evidence and judging the case must not be swayed either by sympathy or by vengeance, but by justice. If their fellow elders persist in sin, they must be rebuked in the presence of all. But if they are found to be innocent of the charges against them, they must be vindicated and restored. And this leads to our final point, ordaining pastors. Paul's final instruction regarding elders is that they should be chosen carefully. We see that in verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, the laying on of hands can mean many things in the Bible, uh, often when the apostles healed someone, they would lay their hands on them or they would pray that people would receive the Holy Spirit. But the context here indicates that Paul is referring to the commissioning of elders, the laying on of hands that, that we call ordination today. Pastors being ordained and commissioned and called formally by the church to the work of pastoral ministry. We know that because of the similar language that Paul uses in chapter four. Verse 14, when he wrote that Timothy received his pastoral commission when the council of elders laid their hands on him. And so in this context, the laying on of hands is a physical gesture that symbolizes the passing on of spiritual authority to another man. And here in verse 22, Paul says, don't be hasty. 
Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be too quick to ordain men as pastors because if you do, you may have to rebuke them one day. And if it comes to that, if the men you raise up persist in sin, then you will share in their responsibility. Paul says that Timothy would take part in the sins of others. And he would do that by taking some responsibility for the sinful ways in which these men harmed God's people. And so, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Philip Ryken summarizes as follows. The best way for him to keep his hands clean is to refuse to lay them on men who are not qualified to become elders. Now, this is one of the reasons why I am so grateful for our partnership within Sovereign Grace. Our family of churches has created and implemented a rigorous ordination process that requires hundreds of hours of reading, multiple exams, the writing of theological papers. It requires testing before a panel of experienced pastors and affirmation from the entire region. It's a process that not many men can complete. But it exists so that we would not be hasty in the laying on of hands. You know, if you're like me, you know, I used to think that pastoral qualifications consisted of two things. You gotta want to do it, and you gotta show some above average proficiency in Bible reading or theology. If you have a man who has both those things, then yeah, why not? Oh, why not? I mean, they're qualified, you know, they desire it. I mean, it's rare enough. Right? It's rare enough to find a man who wants to enter pastoral ministry. We've got to take whoever we can get. But as we've seen in 1 Timothy, pastoral qualifications go much deeper than desire and some measure of knowledge. It is character that is king when it comes to pastoring, not a man's gifts, not a man's desires. A man needs to be able to lead not just by the force of his personality, but by the strength of his integrity. He must live a life worthy of imitation in his family life and in his private life and in his personal devotion to God. Likewise, a man needs much more than a basic level of theological knowledge. He needs to be able to preach sound doctrine and as Titus 1 tells us, he must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. And elsewhere, Paul tells tells us that he must be able to do all that with complete patience without being quarrelsome. That is hard. Charles Spurgeon once said, a man must have a great heart if he would have a great congregation. And that is why our ordination process exists. It exists to help us find great men who would lead and feed great congregations. And by great, Spurgeon was not talking about great in number. He was speaking of, of depth, of, of mature, of persevering churches, not, not, not just breadth, but, but depth. He must lead with light and with heat. Those great Puritan images of the pastoral ministry, truth and passion, a devotion to the word and zeal for the truth in God's word so that his church would truly flourish. Now Paul ends with a personal note 
and a comforting reminder. Verse 23 in parentheses says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now you can imagine there's quite a lot of debate on why Paul inserted this aside to Timothy. Well, I think the best exclamation is that as Paul is exhorting Timothy, young Timothy, his, his pastoral protege, to do this hard work that perhaps feels like it is beyond his capacity, Paul in his compassion is reminded of Timothy's weakness. And he's reminded that he is not only young, but he is frequently afflicted by ailments. And, and so he inserts this fatherly footnote and says, Timothy, just, just remember, you know, take care of yourself. Uh, don't, don't neglect yourself as you fulfill your pastoral responsibilities. Lastly, in verses 24 and 25, verse 24, he says, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Paul wants to remind Timothy that he's not always gonna get it right. Even if he is careful in ordaining elders, the chances are that he's gonna make the wrong calls. Not always, but sometimes, because some people's sins are conspicuous. Sometimes it's obvious who is not qualified by lack of character for pastoral ministry. But sometimes the sins of others aren't so obvious. They will appear later. But for now, they are hidden. Paul's telling Timothy that even the wisest can be fooled. But no one can fool the only wise God. These sins may not be conspicuous now, but they will appear later. Timothy may make mistakes, but God won't, and he will make everything right in the end. In the same way, he writes in verse 25, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Paul wants Timothy to remember that even though not everyone is gonna see your secret labors, they may not appreciate how much you have to wrestle with God and weep over the thought of disciplining your brothers in Christ, your co-pastors in the church, God sees. It is conspicuous to him. And in his divine mercy and grace, he will bring all of your good works to light on the final day. And so let me conclude with a question. Are your sins being done in secret? Are are your sins perhaps not conspicuous to those around you and you continue to persist in sin because you think no one sees? No one will hold you accountable. Well, your sins may not be seen now, but they will be seen later. Jesus says in Luke 12 that even what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. What is unseen will be seen because it is seen by God. But in Jesus Christ, you have a savior who not only forgives sins, but blots them out washes them away so that they will never be seen again. You have a savior who went to the cross so that when the record record of our sins is brought before God on the day of judgment and Satan rises up to accuse us and to 
condemn us by his hateful words, then Christ would stand as our advocate and declare, I have paid for that one's sins. The record has been fully washed away by the blood of the lamb, by the blood that I shed on the cross so that there is now no more condemnation for that one. Well, that is the promise of the gospel. That is the grace that Christ extends to you today, that all of your sins, whether seen or unseen, public or private, past, present, or future, can be paid for by the death of Jesus Christ. But you must repent. You must hear Jesus say, go and sin no more. And you must believe that Christ has indeed lived and died and was resurrected so that you could be righteous before God and so that all your sins would be washed away and never seen again. And so come to him and he will receive you with love and mercy. And for anyone here who feels a calling to pastoral ministry, well, God wants to remind you today of the high calling of a pastor. It doesn't just come with benefits. It comes with sacred responsibilities. It is a calling that comes with immense joys, weighty responsibilities, and dangerous temptations. So if you want to be a pastor, don't just watch your doctrine. Watch your life. Conduct yourself in all purity. Cultivate humility. Lead by example. Walk closely with your Lord. And may our prayer together as a church be that God in his mercy would bring gifted godly men to our church to serve in our church and to serve out of our church as we ordain men, as we lay hands on them, not hastily, but carefully. May the Lord raise out of our church shepherds after his own heart who would feed his people with knowledge and understanding. Let's pray. Father, I tremble under the high calling of a pastor this morning. And I wonder why you, see, you deemed it fit to call me. But I trust that you will provide what you have commanded. And I trust that for anyone else in our church whom you are calling to pastoral ministry, that you will indeed provide what you command that you will equip those whom you commission, that you will be with those you send out. And so we pray, Father, as a church for wisdom, discernment, and faith to raise up godly pastors for the glory of your name and for the advance of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.